I want to just give a couple of announcements for the good of, of, uh, of our church. Um, the, the, the month of October has got a lot of good things coming up, and it's just going to sort of crescendo from one Sunday into another. Um, this coming Sunday, we have Bill Inns joining us, and I know Lauren shared a little bit about that with you. Um, Bill Inns is a coach to Spring Hill and a coach to me. The man has far more experience uh, than, than I do in the pulpit, a, a great man of the Lord. And uh, he's coming, uh, he came about a year and a half ago to lead us in a retreat where we came up with that mission and vision and value statement for the church. And now he's coming back to help us put some teeth to it, to help us understand what does it now look like for us to live into that? What does a church act like who's living into that. So that's October 3rd. Come come join us next Sunday for, for Bill in the pulpit. And then it just keeps getting more exciting. October 10th is Brian Young's install, installation. And uh, let me just tell you what installation means. That's a churchy word for Brian is legit. Okay. Uh, Brian uh, is transferring his ordination from one uh, group, uh, one group of churches, a denomination to another. And our denomination has a robust examination process. It involves um, oral exams, written exams. And so Brian has already been down to Denver to be passed through our, what we call the Committee on Ministry. And now next week, Brian and I will go with some elders up to Helena. You're welcome to join us if you love long and drawn out meetings. And uh, no, they're, they're more exciting than that. But Brian's gonna stand in a pulpit just like this, except for everybody in the pews will be pastors and elders. And they get to ask him whatever questions they want about the Bible, his faith, and I have full confidence Brian is a brilliant, brilliant friend in ministry. And um, so that will happen next Friday. And then by Sunday, he's here with those representatives from our regional body. And we're praying for him and installing him here at Spring Hill. And uh, so excited that we get through all of those and uh, excited for what Brian brings to us. And then finally, October 17th. I know I'm getting long-winded up here, but this is the most important October 17th is Love the Valley Sunday. Um, this is a big deal, folks. This is the first time that Spring Hill's done something like this. This is not a Love, Inc. production. This is a Spring Hill ministry. And here's the thing. Um, keep a secret for me. Uh, we bluffed a little bit, okay? And we told Love, Inc. that there'll be 75 to 100 of us willing to serve this valley. So we're counting on 75 to 100 of us leaving the church that Sunday. And in the meantime, Love, Inc. is working on all sorts of ways that we can love on our neighbors uh, as a church. And you'll see in the back of your uh, bulletins that, that we've already have some homeowners lined up that are in need of some major home repairs for, uh, for winterizing their homes. Uh, if you're good with your, with your hands and with tools, join in on that. Um, if you're not, we have, we're going to jump into at least three, if not all the way up to five grocery stores in town and collect personal goods for those who are in need this winter. We've got furniture moving opportunities. Just imagine this with me. You, you are barely making ends meet in this town. Inflation rises up and your landlord comes to you and says, you're done. We've raised rent, you're out. Now think about that. You don't have money to move. You barely have money to eat or live. How are you gonna get a moving company to help you get your stuff from one place to another? So we're joining with Love, Inc. and, and helping people who are already lined up and in need of moving. On that note, also, uh, we know winter's coming. You can come and help wood, wood cut uh, and split wood. Um, but you can see on there, I won't go into any more of that. We need to know by October 1st, if you can sign up, you can hold your phone, your camera. You know how these works now. Uh, just hold your camera right over this image and it'll pop up right now. Uh, a, a Google Docs, and you can fill that out for Lauren. But by October 1st, so that we can order t-shirts and get everybody lined up and um, 
uh, it should be, should be good. But, uh, but this morning, like I said, if you're joining with us for the first time, you came at a great Sunday because today we wrap up, after a year-long uh, series, we wrap up our series on John. And uh, I'm excited. I'm not only excited about what God has for us today, but I'm also excited that we as a church uh, understand the gospel of John together after a year of work. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for your word to us, Lord, that it speaks to us. God, we pray whatever's going on in the world around us, Lord, whatever baggage that we bring this morning to the cross, Lord, that you would just help us to let it down, to leave it at the, the foot of your cross, Lord, and to be attentive to you. Lord, you are so good to us. And so, uh, God, we just pray as we step into your word now, God, that you would speak to us, that you would change us, Lord, that we would leave this place renewed and refreshed and restored for you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. So this story, uh, we're going to open up to John 21, and this story kind of reads as a postscript. Uh, we could have easily wrapped up this this series last Sunday because um, Jesus has died, Jesus has risen, he's appeared to his disciples multiple times now in this story, and, and we ended last Sunday with Jesus and Peter walking along the shore reconciled. But remember, this gospel was written for one reason. Let's see if we can remember. It was written for one reason, say it with me, so that you may believe. Let's say it one more time, so that you may believe. This morning, we're gonna learn just how emphatic God's word is about those two words, you and belief, you and belief. So uh, let's, turn, let's turn to John 21 verses, well, I say 20 to 25, but we're gonna actually back up 15 to 25. And let me just set this up. Jesus is walking along with Peter on the beach. It's after breakfast, and Jesus tells Peter to follow me. But as we learned last week, and you'll hear again this morning, that followership comes at a steep price. Because Jesus tells Peter, one day you will die for your faith. But now this morning, instead of Peter worrying about his walk with the Lord, he becomes fixated on what Jesus is going to do with the other guy. So let's hear this. We'll back up to verse 15 from last week and then into 20 for our sermon this morning. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now comes our lesson. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had leaned back against him in the, during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? You follow me. 
So the saying spread among, abroad among the brothers that the disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? I've been reading a lot of princess books lately. Um, it's my new pastime, right? That's what a girl dad does. Two daughters, we've been reading a lot of those kind of books. But remember that story. Queen Grimilda, she, she wants to know whether she's the most beautiful one in the kingdom. She has all the power and prestige. And yet despite where she sits in the palace, curiosity gets the best of her. So she begins every day by asking this mirror, who is the fairest in the land? And as long as the mirror reaffirms that it's her, life is good. But then one day she finds out she's been upstaged. Look at this news. Famed is thy beauty, majesty, but hold a lovely maid I see. Rags cannot hide her gentle grace. Alas, she's more fair than thee. And the queen goes into this rage, right? No way is a peasant housekeeper living in rags more beautiful than I. So she screams at this mirror. She says, alas for her, reveal her name. And Grimilda learns it's her stepdaughter. We know her as who? Snow White. This morning, I want to talk about something we might call the Snow White Syndrome. And by that, I mean those moments in life where our focus becomes not on our own walk with, with the Lord, but where we become focused more on the walk with someone else. You might not have caught it, but over the last year, we've come across these, these two significant followers of Jesus in John's gospel repeatedly. And as we've turned every page, we found that they often appear together. The first one was Peter. And we know Peter well by now, right? He was this foot-and-mouth kind of guy. Peter hunts a lot like I do, right? He was ready, fire, aim kind of guy. And from the moment that Jesus called Peter on the shores of Galilee, he became this disciple who was always quick to speak but somehow slow to learn. We've talked a lot about Peter over the last year because Peter is a typecast of us. You know, we know what it is to love the Lord, but what it is to stumble in our pursuit, we have a lot in common with Peter. But there's another disciple. He's repeated over and over again in this story, but he's a lot more stealth. You might not have caught him. In fact, he's so stealth, we never learned his name until this morning. John's gospel nicknames him the beloved disciple or the one whom Jesus loved. And at the very end of our lesson, we learn that this, this man is John, but before then, we have no idea. If you look carefully at these two followers of Jesus, you begin to pick up a pattern throughout John's gospel that is curious. Throughout this story, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he seemed to show up in many of the same scenes as Peter. And in about every single story, it seems as though Peter gets upstaged by his friend. Time and time again, he's, he's busted, he's outdone, he's second place. Let me just point out to you how this plays out. Let me show you a couple examples. Look at this in chapter 13, verse 23. All the disciples are gathered up for, with Jesus for this last supper, and Christ tells them, the one of you will betray me, and one of you will deny me. But Peter has a, a follow-up question. The only problem is that he's not close enough to Jesus to ask it. 
Look at this. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaning against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? Let me just ask you, how did the beloved disciple get the best seat at the table? And how is it that Peter needs him to ask the questions? Skip with me again to John 18. Later on after Jesus' arrest, you'll remember Peter and another disciple, they follow close behind. We covered this a few weeks ago. And when they get to the high priest's house, only one of them has the status and the clout to get through the gatekeeper to the courtyard with Christ. Peter gets upstaged again. Look at this. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Assuming this too is one of the beloved, is the beloved disciple, the only way Peter gets in is through the influence of his friend. And the reason I say that, right, is this is likely the beloved disciple is that the, the crescendo of John's gospel gives us the exact same designation again. Except for this time, Jesus has died. It's morning and the disciples are now at the resurrection. And Peter and the other disciple, they run to the tomb. Look at how this plays in John 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. It's an interesting pattern and maybe I'm reading into it, but it seems to me that the, the unnamed beloved disciple is always besting Peter. First, he sits closer to him at the dinner table. Then he gets access to the high priest's courtyard while Peter's left outside. And now Peter can't even win the foot race to the empty grave. So we turn to this morning's lesson. Jesus has now restored Peter to ministry. He's told Peter one day if he's following Jesus right, he'll pay for it with his life. He says, Peter, come what may, you need to follow me. But the minute Peter hears this word from Jesus, he turns and realizes the beloved disciple is already following. Look at, it, look at this again in verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Let me just make sure we all understand this moment. Jesus has just reconciled Peter in relationship to him. Peter had denied Christ three times, but in God's grace, Jesus restores him now to ministry. He does so by asking Peter three times, do you love me? And all three times, Peter says, yes. So Jesus says to Peter, let's do this again. He said, if we're doing this right, you'll end up being carried where you don't want to go. In other words, Peter, you will be a martyr for your faith. And this time Peter's all in, except we're told he looked over his shoulder and the disciple whom Jesus loved is already following him. He's already doing what Peter had been told to do. So he asked the Lord, he says, what about this man? Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Now, let me just be reasonable. We can't know Peter's heart in this minute, right? Scholars debate the intent of his question. Was he envious? 
that his friend was already following Jesus? Or was he worried and concerned that his friend might too die the same death as Peter? We can't know. But this much is clear. Right after Jesus told Peter to follow him, Peter's no longer concerned with his own followership. He's now just concerned with Jesus' plan for the other guy. What'll come of him? Let's talk about the Snow White syndrome for a minute. You know, whatever our intentions are, we all have it. We all wrestle with this need to compare our walk with others. From as early as we can remember, this phenomenon plays out daily. You don't have to look beyond your own morning to see it. If we really dug deep and we've thought about it, we're constantly comparing ourselves to those around us. Peter's just been restored by Christ, right? But Jesus tells him, Peter, do you love me? If you do, you have work to do. Feed my sheep, follow me. And yet Peter turns around and before Jesus can say another word, he's no longer concerned with his faith. He's now concerned with that guy. Lord, what about him over there? What do we... What are we gonna do with him? What's his end game? See, it seems to me it's, it's in our human nature to be about someone else's business. Growing up, I feel like as soon as we can talk, we learn to compare ourselves with our siblings. We know our parents love us, but we wonder, well, what about them? And as we get older, it gets more complicated. We, we begin comparing our salaries or our status with our colleagues or competitors. We don't talk about this out loud, but we even compare our children, whether or not they're, they're fitting in and landing among their peers. We compare the looks of our houses, our influence, our relationships. Who is the fairest of them all? Lord, I know that you've called me to follow you, but what about that one? And the church is far from immune. You know, we measure the eloquence of our prayers with the, the person next to us. We measure the worn pages of their Bibles compared to ours. And the danger of this distraction, of this Snow White syndrome, is that we're no longer concerned with what God has for us, and instead, we're caught up with the other guy. Whether or not Peter was envious or jealous or just curious about God's plan, we'll never know. But we know this. In that moment, as Peter walks alongside the risen Lord, he was more concerned with the man behind him than he was with what was forward with Jesus. And this can't just be a, a fellow's love for his friend, right? Because Jesus calls Peter out on the spot. He tells Peter, you just stepped too far. And as we look at this passage, I, I wanna talk about two reasons for why this comparison game is no good for us. The first is this. Snow White syndrome is toxic because it's silent. It's toxic because it's silent. You know, the comparison game, it always begins with curiosity, right? I wonder who is the fairest in the land, says the queen to the mirror. Or Lord, what about that guy, asks Peter. But the danger with this comparison game is that no one knows that we play it. Unlike all the other shortfalls, it pulls us away from our walk with the Lord before anyone can see it. Psalm 139, look at this on the screens. It says this, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. You know, it's so hard to give God that kind of praise for what he's done in your life if you're caught up in wondering, what about them? The Snow White Syndrome, if we're not careful, it makes us insecure in who God made us to be. It distracts us from God's plan in our lives. There's a, a fable about the, the evil one trying to get a holy man to sin. It was, 
nearly impossible, right? Because this man had chosen to live out in the desert apart from society. And so when it came to the pure life, he was crushing it. One day the devil got an idea. He snuck down to where this man was praying and he whispered in his ear. He said, your brother just was made Bishop of Alexandria. Immediately the holy man's face turned red. He scowled and his eyes lit up. The devil laughed. He said, see, comparison is the best weapon against those who seek holiness. Again, we don't know Peter's heart, but we know that if you allow your focus to become caught up with that other person in your life, how can your focus be caught up with your own walk with Christ? See, the reality is we will always have a snow white. We'll always have that beloved disciple walking around the next corner. Which brings me to this second caution. And that is that the comparison game is dangerous because it's distracting. You know, the way that God designed his church was very specific. He set up his church with a variety of gifts, each which with its own plan for its own person. In fact, look at this. Look at this, 1 Corinthians 12. Now, there's a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There's a variety of service, but the same Lord. There's a variety of activities, but is the same God who empowers them in all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For to one is given the spirit of utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts and healing by the one spirit, to another the working of miracles or prophecy, the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, interpretations. All these are empowered by the one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Notice the same spirit gives different gifts to different followers of Jesus. Why? So that in working together, we might each glorify God for the common good. But the danger of comparison is that it leaves us not asking the question of, Lord, how can I best follow you? But it asks, what about them? Random trivia. I'm stepping into dangerous ground here, but let me just talk about horses for a minute. Some of you could do me far more justice. Did you ever notice the peripheral vision of a horse? Last week I learned horses have eyes that are eight times the size of ours. But their ability to focus is far worse. And the reason for this is our eyes are meant to look forward. They're on the front of our faces. So we, we automatically see what's ahead of us. But horses' eyes are to the sides. I read this week that a horse's range of view is four times the size of ours. They say they can see some of them all the way to 350 degrees. Now think about that. With that kind of scope of vision, how do you get your horse to focus on what matters? Remember the story of Secretariat? You know how they enabled that horse to get so fast? Blinders, or as they called them, blinkers. And to do this, they, they know that this, this is what helps the horse in a race because otherwise they get caught up in their left or their right or even behind them. But blinders, they keep them focused on what's ahead. Maybe it's not envy. Maybe it's not jealousy, but at the very least, Peter was caught up in curiosity and he needed some blinders. And psychologists have found that this comparison game, it decreases life satisfaction. It's been linked directly with depression. Some say when it gives way to envy or jealousy, it can be directly connected with physical illness. Psychologists are going crazy studying this even now. They call it social comparison, and the blame they put is on social media. 
See, but when it comes to our faith and our walk with Jesus, the concept becomes all the more important. It's not that it's wrong to be concerned with the welfare of our, our Christian brothers or sister and their walk of life. It's that Peter skipped right over God's plan in his own world and became caught up with his friends. Jesus had just told Peter, follow me. But even before Peter takes the first step, we're told he sees the beloved disciple behind him and he's no longer concerned with his walk because he's too caught up in his friend's walk. So what's the solution? Look at how Jesus responds, John 21, verse 22. He says, if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? In other words, Peter, he may live and he may not live, but it's Nunya. In my house, I say, it's Nunya. And the girls say, what does that mean? I said, Nunya business. Now, Jesus says, Peter, your business is that you follow me. The solution for our, our snow white tendencies is to put the blinders on and focus not, not on the other, but on our own walk with the Lord. You know, let's think about this. If we hadn't have had Peter and what God did in his life in this story, we would have never understood what it means to walk with Jesus as he did. To learn not only from his mistakes, but also from his triumphs and his wins and his heart. Peter asked questions that we ask and we have insight into who Jesus is because of him. And if we'd have never had the beloved disciple, we would have never had this book. The end of our lesson tells us the last words of the gospel John is the one who bore witness to these things. He was the one who wrote them down. And even though God works in each of their lives differently, he accomplished the same goals for the gospel through both of them. John wrote this gospel so that you might believe in God. And at the end of the day, right, God's will, whether it was for the beloved disciple or for Peter or for us, is that we would choose first to follow him. So this week, as we wrap up this series, let me invite you to do one thing. Let me invite you to look in the mirror and don't ask the question about your fairness. That'll get awkward. But instead, ask the Lord to help you seek him come what may. Let me pray for us. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for this book. Lord, not only for the gospel of John, but Lord, for its place in the entirety of, of the witness of who you are. Lord, we thank you that by the Holy Spirit, you speak to us through it. And God, we just confess so often in life, we, rather than being focused on your word to us and focused on what you would have for us, we get distracted. Lord, rather than living lives of thanksgiving for what you've given and for where you're leading, Lord, we get caught up, curious, jealous, envious of what you're doing in their lives. Lord, we ask this morning, God, that you would lead us again or that you would put those blinders on that we would stay focused on you Lord, we live distracted lives. We live among a distracted people, God. Fix our eyes on your cross. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.